0: Hey, movie addicts, welcome to Cinema Fix, your site for the purest, highest quality movie reviews on the block. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined today by my fellow dealer, Frank Reddy. You can't see it right now, but I'm giving you the thumbs up. The thumbs up? Yes. Good to know you're, you're here, and you're enthusiastic. I'm here, <laughs> and enthusiastic. <laughs> All right, well, this is part two of episode number 11 of Cinema Fix, focusing on the movie Haywire. So if you're looking for part one, you're listening to the wrong file. Go back and listen to part one. Uh, If this is your first time listening to Cinema Fix, you should be aware that this is the show on Film Geek Radio devoted to discussion of mainstream blockbuster films. Each week, we release our our episodes in two parts. The first part is just a general, spoiler-free discussion uh, of of what we thought of of that week's big film. Um, And the second part, which you're listening to right now, is the more in-depth, analytical, spoiler-filled discussion of the movie. Um, So... Just just so we're clear, in case you didn't hear, this is part two. So if you don't want to be spoiled, stop listening and go listen to part one. But um, Haywire is the new film from Steven Soderbergh about a uh, black ops private security contractor who is betrayed and has to find out who betrayed her and, and why and get revenge, clear her name. We've seen this plot before. Here's a clip. Mallory, I hope you've decided to turn yourself in. You can tell me right now why you sold me out and what you're into with Studer. Or you can tell me in ten minutes when I have my hands around your throat. You need to think for a minute, Mallory. You need to stop pretending you can achieve a desirable outcome in this situation and turn yourself in. Do it for the sake of your father. Surrender now if you want to live. I'm sorry, Mallory. That's not possible. All right, Kenneth. We'll do it your way. She's...
1: She's,
0: she's here. Here? Where? In the house. Track says she's in the house. Go. Frank, when we talked about Haywire in part one, we both concluded that it's a good film. We did. It's a plot we've seen a million times before. It is. But that Soderbergh does incorporate some interesting stylistic elements that, that sort of raise the bar a little bit. He did. Um, I want to talk about some of those elements. First, I want to talk about the structure. Let's talk about the structure. Because the structure is really weird when you sit and think about it. I mean, the film throws you right in the middle of things. It opens up. If you've seen the trailer, you've seen part of the scene. She goes to a cafe. Guy comes to pick her up. Channing Tatum. Channing Tatum. They get into a huge fist fight. She kicks his ass. Runs out with with this innocent bystander, essentially, and steals his car. So she's in the car. With, with the innocent bystander. With this innocent bystander. Scott. Played, Scott, played by uh, Michael Angerano. And um, and the structure is that she's basically just telling this random guy... Part of the story. ...what's happened to her up to this yes. point.
1: and he... he sh- what's funny is we talked about how it was tough to keep track of the plot. She's just stopped, like, halfway through the story and makes him go back and recite the names and who they are. Right. So that's kind of like... It serves a, a plot point later, but it also, I think, kind of helps with the audience. Like, okay... You just met more people than we could ever possibly expect you to keep track of at once.
0: Right. He's basically the audience stand-in, the guy yeah. that's supposed to sit there and be like, okay, wait, so, so this is what's happening. This happened, and then there was this person who was doing that, and then I think this is this is that guy that you were dating before, and he's the head of the company. And Kenneth. Kenneth, and, and okay, I think I've got it all down. And it's really interesting, and the reason I think it, it works and isn't just a gimmick, is because it kind of gives you a reason to care about Scott. Yeah. Like, if this was, if this movie occurred chronologically, and in the middle of film, she meets this kid, throws him in the car, and then they have this car chase later on, and separate soon after. Yeah, just some random dude. He'd though. just be a random guy. Yeah. And I feel like this, the, this screenwriter, Lem Dobbs. I feel like Lem Dobbs was kind of thinking, okay, we need someone that the audience can relate to a little bit more. Because sure we, we we care about Mallory, our protagonist, just because she's the protagonist and this she's been betrayed and we're supposed to care about her. But we've seen this stuff before. So it's almost like I feel like the writers were thinking, Well, it's so familiar. Is the audience really gonna connect to her? We need we need someone else. We need someone new, someone fresh, someone who's just kind of innocent. I agree with part
1: of it. I mean, I think it, I think Scott is a plot device that allows them to rearrange the, the
0: structure a little bit. But, but, but see, the reason I think that they, they chose to rearrange the structure in that way is that by spending more time implicitly with Scott, because even though we don't see him on screen, the implication is she's telling him this story for, let's say, 50 minutes. So we've implicitly spent 50 minutes with Scott as opposed to just 10. And I just think that the the amount of length, that implicit length of time, helps the audience connect to Scott a little bit more. I don't think Scott's Scott's necessary, though. Scott's only function is
1: literally allowing her to tell the story to someone. Scott has nothing else to do.
0: So then you would say that this interesting structure isn't necessary. I think it is. I think the interesting structure is necessary. I think Scott's the plot device that allows it to happen, and that's it. See, I kind of feel like yes, he's the plot device that allows the, this interesting structural element to occur. But I also think that that structure element was in place to give us someone else to care a little bit about because he's the audience stand-in. He doesn't know what's going on. He's confused, and through him, we get to imagine well, what would we do if we were in that situation where a crazy hit woman essentially kidnapped us and threw us into that situation. And also, you can... The the interesting thing about it is that later on, you can tell she cares about him. She's trying to protect him, make sure he doesn't get hurt. She kind of is a nice person. She's responsible
1: for a situation.
0: Right. She's not one of these crazy action heroes that doesn't care what happens to the innocent civilians. She's always doing whatever she can to protect innocent people. And so, she cares about Scott. And I think the fact that we've spent implicitly so much time with him helps us understand that and helps us get on board with that as opposed to just, you know, if it was structured normally and she just met Scott and he was on screen for 10 minutes, we'd kind of be like, why do you care about him? He's a random guy. He'll be okay. Just throw him, throw him out the car, do it, you know, Well whenever. Let me ask you this. If, if, if he had decided, you know what, we're going to structure this movie normally
1: or we're going to tell a straight linear narrative, which, do you think Scott would still be in the movie? I don't
0: no, think he would. There'd I don't no think he would. And that's the thing. I think they realized we need another character that, one, the audience can relate to, and two, we need a character that she can show a little bit of affection for to show, to re- also reveal that she's she's responsible. She's not just a cold killing machine. So I think that's why they included Scott, and I think that's why. They, he chose to structure the film in the way he did. It's accomplishing two things. It's giving us another character to um, latch on to, and it's revealing things about her, and it allows them to do this interesting structure, which implicitly makes us care about him more. I think the interesting st- structure came first. Scott probably came second. That's okay. what like to do, the interesting structure. Because
1: I, I honestly think the, the upside to doing this... The non non-linear, nonlinear structure is you get to have that scene where Channing Tatum is just beating her up in the middle of a coffee shop, and it raises questions, why is he doing that? Why did she do? You know, it, it's it's an on-the-run movie, and if you didn't structure it nonlinearly, you'd be waiting, I think, a good 20, 30 minutes before anybody's actually on the run.
0: Well, that's true, and, you know, it does... Like we mentioned in part one, it does require the audience to keep up, yeah, and and to pay attention, and to not just write it off as oh, I've seen this plot a million times before because I think that would be easy to do. Yeah. So so I think the regardless of what came first, Scott or the structure, I think they work inherently well together and they complement each other and they strengthen each other. I concur, and that's just one element of an interesting stylistic choice that Soderbergh made in terms of. Um, the cinematography in this movie, it, it, at times, it's very standard. Yeah. And other times, it's really interesting. Like, there's a scene near the beginning of the film. It's when Kenneth, played by Ewan McGregor, comes to basically tell her that there's one more job yeah. he'd like her to do. And she's unpacking her things.
1: Oh, thinking about the things where she's putting things she's putting, on the shelf yeah, She's and putting
0: her things on the shelf, and she goes the camera, layer by layer. The camera goes down shelf by shelf, following her as she put things, as she puts things on the shelf. And I was sitting there and I was thinking, wait, what, why is that happening? Why is the camera doing that? Is there is there something significant about these items she's putting on the shelf? Is it just designed to give us a different perspective and frame the actors differently each time it goes down? It's a really interesting shot. And I'm still not quite sure why he chose to frame it that way, but it looks cool.
1: He always does stuff like that. He always does, like, interesting little stylistic things that are unusual but are very cool. Right.
0: There's one scene in particular I want to really dive into in terms of style, but before we do that, is there anything else you want to bring up about the film?
1: Well, I just think that, you know, with scenes like that, I think it helps. When you have scenes like that that are really all dialogue and exposition heavy... I think it helps to be able to throw a little bit of eye candy in there, just to help
0: give them a little bit more flavor. And it also detracts from some of Gina Carano's pretty awful line reading deficiencies. Yeah, at times, <laughs> you know, it, it can it can distract from that. Yeah. I want to talk about the small little car chase that occurs in, in the woods. Yes. Yeah. Basically, she's finished telling Scott what's happened to her. Everything's up to date. We're we're, we're basically we're we're in the present now. He's in the car, she's driving, and they come across a roadblock from a L.E.O.'s local, or law Law enforcement enforcement officers. Yeah, law enforcement officers. And she, she quickly has to turn around, and there's this little small car chase. It's not even really a car chase. It's basically her and these two vehicles, basically. And at times, she's going in reverse, backing away from them towards another one, and it's I'm I was trying to replay I spent hours last night just thinking about this movie and trying to replay that scene in my mind because if I'm pretty sure that at no point until the very end of the scene, at no point is the car moving in the same direction that they're looking and the camera's looking in that direction as well. Does that make sense? No. Like it I I believe he, he, he would always show it like um He'd have the camera, let's oh, say, in front okay. of the car. I know what you're saying. He, he'd have the camera on front of the car.
1: Yeah, and they'd be driving backwards. They'd
0: be driving backwards, and the
1: characters would be looking at the camera towards
0: the camera. Yes, they're not looking where they're going. Right. Or alternatively, uh, they're reversing towards the camera. The camera's on the back of the car. They're in reverse. They're looking back towards the camera, and the camera's looking ahead yeah. at the car in front of them. And we can't see what they're looking at. We can't mm-hmm. see what they're where what you know where they're going. Yes. And that implicitly, I think, adds, it's this little aesthetic touch that I think adds an interesting layer of tension. Because even though we can see what's in front of the car,
1: we can't see where they're headed. We can't
0: see what they're looking at. We have to trust that she knows where she's going and that there's nothing that's going to jump out at them. And yet? And if I pretty, I am pretty sure that the only shot that has the can't, the camera and hence the audience the characters and the car moving in the same direction is the scene at the very end when they when they hit the deer yeah and it's this quick moment when suddenly they're moving in reverse they're looking in reverse the camera's right there with them looking in the same direction and then we have that one moment of security where it's like okay i can see what's going on and then bam it's interrupted.
1: I loved that moment. I loved it because it was unexpected, and, and yet at the same time, it's something that happens to a lot of motorists. You know what I mean? Right. It seems like such a mundane end to a car chase, and it, it just was so funny.
0: It's it's perfect.
1: Yeah, because it's realistic.
0: It, it, it kind of it's, – it's, it's really kind of brilliant when you stop to think about yeah. it because what you have is essentially this really formulaic, cliche, B-movie action plot we've seen a million times. Yeah. That we're, we're aware, has to go through certain beats, has to hit certain points. We're expecting a, a, this, this big car chase. And then suddenly, it's like, bam, they hit a deer. That's not supposed to happen in a movie. No. That's not supposed to happen to the action hero. That's a, that, that only happens to people in real life. Yeah. And it was almost like Soderbergh saying, ha-ha, you, I, you think I'm, I'm going to give you this typical movie moments?" But no, I'm going to raise the stakes. I'm going to make it clear that this is real life. Yeah. Anything can happen. Crazy stuff happens in real life all the time. It's crazy crazy, chaotic events and crazy coincidences like a deer jumping out behind the car yeah. right as they're going down the road.
1: You know, another thing I liked about the end of that scene is, you know, they get out of the car. They've hit the deer. Obviously, the car's not coming anywhere anymore. And Scott goes, you know, do we run? Should we run? Because the police are driving towards them. And she's like, No. I mean, we're in enough trouble already. It, it's kind of like you never really see that from an action hero where they're just like, you know what? The sensible thing to do now is just stop.
0: Right. You know, you you, you expect them to either run or you expect when the cops to get there that yeah. she's just going to whip out a gun and kill them all.
1: Yeah. Or something. Well, she's hurt her arm after the thing in the cafe. Right. And, you know... In, a, like, in, like, a diehard movie, Bruce Willis would still be, like, sprinting. Yes. <laughs> you know, in a typical action movie, the, the action hero would be like, no, we're going we're gonna, to, you know, fight through the pain. We're going to keep going. And I kind of liked, the, again, it was like this intrusion of the real world onto it. She's like, you know what? There's no way out of this scenario. Right. The best thing we can do now is just stop. It.
0: It's, it's, it's just kind of like, look, this is the real world. We just hit a deer. Yeah. It happened. We can't fix it. Yeah. We have to go with it. Yeah. And then when she's with them in the car... You, again, you get that sense that she's a responsible human being. She's kinda like you guys do realize I, I'm gonna just be honest and tell you what's going on and let you know that you could die. Yeah. You you law enforcement officers. I don't want you to get hurt. Well, you buy it though and they're like, Yeah, you're full of
1: it. You know, oh, right. I mean? yeah. You understand why but, they're
0: But at the same time you kinda feel like she's she's not telling them that just because it's a all an elaborate ruse and she wants to use it to get away. Yeah. You you feel like, well, no, she's been caught but she really does care that these other people don't get hurt as yeah, a result she, of her mess.
1: She's like, there's an c- innocent civilian in the other car. Right. He's, he's going to get killed right. if you guys go through
0: with this. And you're going to get killed potentially. Yeah. And it's a, this interesting aspect to the female action hero because that's something we've seen before. This 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 idea that you can have a female action hero, but she almost has to have – she she can't be just the cold machine. She has to be almost like a maternal figure at times. Like, I'm thinking back to, like, Kill Bill. You've got Uma Thurman and her daughter. You've got uh, Ripley in the Alien movies, you know, protecting Newt. And, you know, these female action heroes tend to not be as cut and dry. They tend to – you actually – they they seem like responsible people Yeah, when they're not kicking ass. And there's that interesting line of dialogue laid on in the film when Ewan McGregor's talking to Fassbender and uh, Fassbender says something like, "Well, I've never killed a woman before," and he says, "Well, she's not a woman, and if you think of her as one, that that would be a mistake yeah and it's this sexist line, yeah, that idea that, oh well, she's tough, she's not really a woman yeah, but at the same time, with scenes like the these interactions. With, between her and Scott, you can tell that she is kind of... She is a woman. She does have these kind of maternal feelings for the people she runs into. She does have a bit of a softer side. She isn't always just kill, kill, kill. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought that was a really interesting subversion of, of just kind of these action hero tropes.
1: Yeah, it was great. I, I really liked it. I, I, I think, you know, when you have a story that that's cliche, if you can... You can go against. I think the only way to go against that is in the the smaller moments within, is to try and make those as grounded as possible and kind of shy away from the extremism that a story like that
0: invites. Right. I have a question for you. Yeah. Have you seen The Limey? I haven't. Okay. The Limey is a really interesting film with, with sort of a similar plot. And the ending of The Limey and the ending of. Haywire are almost identical. They were written by the same person, right? Yeah. And they were both directed by Stoderberg. Soderbergh. Yeah. Um, and I was I was listening to I think it was Slant Magazine. I think they recorded a short little uh, audio review of of Haywire, and I can't remember who it was, but, but they pointed out that in both these films, the hero ends up confronting the bad guy on a beach, mm-hmm. and it ends with them basically tripping on some rocks and breaking an ankle. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how that confrontation comes to an end. And in one film, uh, the hero is a bit merciful, and then here in Haywire, she's, she's not. She's kind of like, well, I'm going to leave you to die, Yeah, basically. And it was just so odd when, when I was remembering, oh, yeah, that is how the Limey ends. What is going on here that he would essentially copy himself? I don't know. I don't know. I think, first of all, it's an odd
1: environment for, like, a final confrontation. The right. beach, it seems counterintuitive because it, especially the way it's shot here, it's, like, a beautiful sunny day. It's very peaceful.
0: Right. And, and again, the whole setup does feel very cliche and almost kind of like something out of a B movie. He has a bodyguard, but he's like, oh, no, stay behind. I'm just going for a walk. Yeah. So, of course, he's alone, and we know, okay, this is where she's going to get him. And then she's in these big combat boots. Yeah. She's running for, like, five seconds on the beach yeah. up to him. And he apparently doesn't hear her. Well, that's what I liked about it, though, is it it's
1: so straightforward. <laughs> right. And-
0: it, it's very over the top.
1: Yeah. It's so straightforward. Um,
0: and, and it's, it's just one of those moments where, again, you, I couldn't figure out, is Soderbergh trying to get us to take this seriously? Even though it is such a B movie kind of, I don't think so. Late plot, or is he just trying to have his tongue firmly planted in cheek and have a little fun with it and make us laugh at it a little bit? I think it's closer to the latter. I think it's, I think he's riffing
1: on you know action movie stereotypes and just playing along with with what you expect. In, in some cases, choosing to subvert it; and others, just embracing it and trying to make it work. Because mm-hmm. um, I think some of that stuff is just so firmly rooted in the tradition of these spy movies. And, and a lot of it's just suspension of disbelief type stuff that you, that you embrace if you're a fan of those movies, um, in order to enjoy it, you know, again, but what I liked is, is, you know, the small moments of, of realism, you know, like in a James Bond movie, I imagine if the villain had tried to cl- try to climb the rocks, he would have, he would have done it. And this one, it just seemed perfect that <laughs> if you're, if you're in a place like the beach and you're trying to run away from your enemy, you are going to slip and fall on a rock and probably right. twist your ankle. And
0: there's that humorous moment where there's that big boulder, and he, like, tries to jump on yeah. it, almost like he thinks he can climb it. Yeah. And it's just an act of sheer desperation. desperation. Yeah, like, yeah. you know there's no way he can get up there, but he still tries it anyway. Yeah. And the way that he dies, just kind of stuck there between the rocks, he finally reveals his whole story. I was just kind of thinking, wait, wait, wait. Are you you sure you can't get your leg out? from those rocks it looked tw- it, like, it looked
1: like it twisted completely like right. it was
0: broken but there's no way he could pull it out I w- I'm sure it would be very painful it looked too painful it looked pretty stuck to me I mean if you're gonna die I imagine you would do some pretty extreme things to get out of that mess yeah, but this you is, would you would mutilate
1: again. It's your suspension switch. of disbelief. It's yeah. just reasonable suspension of disbelief. Or maybe they're just leaving it open for for haywire too. I doubt it. He's going to come back. He's going to be missing a foot. I doubt it. But here's what I, here's what I think. I got the impression. You know, we were talking about how he left his bodyguard behind. I got the impression because before that, there's this sequence where he just he sits on his bed and it's dark out and he's just staring, like ready, just in case somebody kicks down the door. Well, right, and, and the well, sun comes up and well, he's still well,
0: like, he tries to call. Uh, the other guy, his, the guy that he had helped him out with the conspiracy, um, and he won't take the call. I can't, I can't remember yeah. his name. Um, and he doesn't take the call, and it's almost like he realizes, "Oh no, I'm on my own. I'm on my own here. I'm not getting any help." And this woman's alive, and she's probably coming after so me. So
1: I thought when he left, the impression I got after seeing him just sit there all night, like staring at the door, where he's thinking, "I can't live like this," and he walks, he tells the bodyguard to stay behind. I think that he wants. I think he's like almost like let's just get this over with. You think he has
0: a death wish, kind of? Yeah, kind or, of like. Yeah, uh, or he's just
1: like, this is coming. Let's get it over with. I mean, maybe I'll get lucky and I'll beat her. Right. Or, or maybe, maybe she'll, she'll kill me. Right. I don't think she's expecting though for it to turn into instead of just like her like snapping his neck or shooting him to death. Now he has like the excruciating thing of just waiting for the tide to get higher and higher and higher. Right. So it's that's a horrible way to die. Right. You're basically just anticipating your death.
0: Right. It is interesting because. In movies, water in the ocean is frequently associated with um, women, femininity, romance, sexuality. And then you have that kind of final metaphorical idea of he- he's just going to be consumed by it. Yeah. And that, that sort of link between sexuality and femininity being the death of men comes up earlier in that fight with Michael Fassbender. Yeah. When they're basically just wrestling on the bed beating the crap out of each other and then she chokes him to death with her thighs yeah and it's this almost well, erotic She doesn't
1: choke him to death with her thighs she chokes him with her thighs right the death came well, when she, she which... shot him in the head <laughs> that's true
0: <laughs> she almost chokes him to death with her thighs yeah. uh and then she shoots him in the head but but yeah it's, it's this moment and it, it's you don't know i like i was sitting there and i'm like this is both horrifying and erotic at the same time yeah. like like and maybe it's just because I a, a week earlier I had just seen Michael Fassbender in Shame, but I almost expected it to turn into to a sex scene.
1: Well, no, there's just <laughs> that moment where he gets he, she's like choking him with, she's choking him, and he just gets this look on his face, right? Like he's almost enjoying it a little bit,
0: right? And he's still got the those uh, jaunty cheekbones from when yeah. he's filming Shame, and I was just kind of like, what is this? is this? What's this going to turn into? <laughs> yeah. So that yeah, th- there is that idea that you know we have that idea of femininity and sexuality being associated with death yeah um and it's just a really interesting element to it and again she kisses Channing tatum and it's implied they have sex yeah. and then later on he dies yeah you you don't want to mess with this woman well she doesn't kill him she doesn't kill him but she, does. she doesn't take him to a hospital either well, it's because he dies before. <laughs> like... Well, <laughs> she doesn't even call nine one one. I guess
1: she goes to take check his pulse, and he's already
0: dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's, he starts to talk. I mean, he's still he's holding on to life. Well, I gotta ask you. Speaking of that that scene, what did you think of the relationship she had with her father, Bill Paxton? It was really interesting. It was odd, but interesting. I kind of felt like they would have gone to him. As soon as she, they knew she was alive. Like, as soon as she called up Ewan McGregor and he realized Fassbender was dead, I feel like he would have immediately been like, we're going to go to her father. That's what I thought. That's the
1: one plot hole that bothered me is if you know, he even says it in that scene earlier where he's talking to her about her father and she she's gotten her father's new book. And it just seems like that would be like the smart play is to go stick out her father.
0: Wait, and now who did, is it? Is it Channing Tatum or is it Kenneth Hugh McGregor? Who who does she tell that her father knows her job? Or is it Scott? She tells someone. She's like, yeah, my father Uh, knows what it is that I do. do. It's Channing Tatum. It's Channing Tatum. Because, again, because I was sitting there and I was during that scene at the end when they're all in the house. And her father is lying and saying, no, I don't know where she is. I don't really know what she does. Aren't you a security company? I feel like, wait. She told Channing Tatum, shouldn't he pipe up and be like, hey, you're lying, you know what she does, <laughs> kind of thing. But he doesn't. And I was that seemed kind of weird to me. But I guess the implication is he's supposed to be having doubts about what really happened in Barcelona and yeah. that sort of thing. But it was... Uh, th- th- yeah, the script at times I thought could have been a bit more sh- streamlined. It is. It
1: just... I don't
0: know how he did it. He just...
1: Soderbergh pulled it off where he, just, he skips over all this stuff. And I don't know if it's because... You know, we're so familiar with the genre that you autom- your mind automatically fills in the blanks. Right. It just doesn't bother you. And it's you. only after the fact when you're thinking about it. You're like, oh, yeah, that kind of doesn't make sense. Because it is very much a genre piece. Right. It is but definitely he's playing within these set parameters and just trying to see how he can. It's almost like a game. Like he has these parameters, these very cut and dry parameters, and then how can I be creative within these restrictions? Right. Right.
0: Okay. Well, is there anything else you want to say about uh, Haywire? Before we call it a day.
1: Um, I, I did want to just touch on the ending because I really, I really did enjoy the ending where Antonio Banderas' I guess new wife or girlfriend.
0: I kind of ans- felt bad for her. I want to know what happened to her. Did she die?
1: I just – I don't know. I thought it was hilarious though. <laughs> just, I love the way he frames, frames it where it, the shot transitions from being her sitting on top of Antonio Banderas, the wife. She goes to answer the door. And you just see her just get yanked through this door. Right. And he has no idea. And he's sitting there, sitting there. And you keep expecting something to happen. And I thought, okay, is she going to, like, sniper shot in the head or something? But or? no, he,
0: he, the Soderbergh lets you sit there with Antonio Banderas yeah. until he figures out, oh, something weird's going on.
1: And then I just love how she drops him behind him. And then just the very last shot is him going, oh, shit. Yeah. And literally out loud going oh shit and then it, it cuts to black and I think that's just the perfect way to end it and I think that's it su- sums up what this movie does very well which is just you know she's going to kick his ass you almost don't need to see it you know it's, what's happening and it just it it treats the audience as though you're intelligent as though you've seen movies before which is I, I think is good.
0: Right, and I get, I like that scene. I just I just wanted to know what happened to his wife or his girlfriend. I was kind of like, oh, I hope she didn't die. She probably just knocked her out. She was she was pretty hot. <laughs> I liked her. She was nice. She was being flirtatious. She didn't do anything wrong.
1: No, which is why I'm sure, given how they established the character, she just got knocked out, or he she told her to leave, or something.
0: Or maybe she's only um, maybe she only really cares about the, the innocent male bystanders. Oh, Andrew. maybe she doesn't care about the other women. I don't think that's true. You don't think so? I don't. I think that would be interesting if that was the case. If there were other examples in the film where, if there was a if there was an innocent woman, like a more eye candy ish kind of stereotypical babe, those women get uh, killed off while they they get killed off by the more macho, masculine-ish... Ser- I mean, stereotypically speaking, of course, masculine-ish woman. <laughs> so you think she and, and she lets the men. She takes care of the innocent men. That that would be weird, I think, but it would be interesting. That's why I raised the question, because I'm like, I just want to know what happened to her. I want to know. We just got knocked out off screen. That's my guess.
1: She got knocked out. Or she got, she's just like, get get out of here. You don't want to be here. You don't
0: think she was like, you're sleeping with an evil man. I'm taking you out. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that'll wrap it up for our discussion of Haywire. Be sure to tune in next week when we will be discussing Liam Neeson in the gray. Yay. It's between black and white. It's the gray. Yeah. We'd love to get your feedback on the show. You can email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at www.filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to us through iTunes. So if you like the show please write us a review. That would help get the word out about the show. You can also donate to the show through the website. We really appreciate it. It, it really does help keep us running and, uh, and bringing you new content every week. Frank, where can people find you online?
1: Uh, quite frankly, television.com is my blog. Uh, F- at FJ
0: Ready is my Twitter. And I'm on Facebook. Okay. I'm Andrew Johnson. You can find some of my writing at Um You can also follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash writerandrew. If you do follow me please be sure to send me a message and let me know that you're a listener uh, so I can be sure to follow you back because I, I want to stay in touch with our listeners and continue the conversation. Let's keep the discussion going. Alright, I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Frank Freddy. And have fun this week getting high on cinema. See you